Come up on I'm Daniel Chacon. Welcome to another edition of Words on a Wire. This is going to be a fantastic show because we have one of the most amazing Chicana writers alive today, Ana Castillo, whose new novel, Give It to Me, just came out, and we're going to talk about that today. On Poetic License, we have my good friend and excellent poet, Nancy Ede Gonzalez, and she's going to share a few words with us, inspired by a workshop that Ana Castillo gave in California, and uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing what Nancy has to say. And then I am going to read a poem of the week by Charles Bukowski, and you might say, what? Ana Castillo and Charles Bukowski? How is that even possible? The novel that she wrote is actually uh, in part influenced by Charles Bukowski, and her main character, Palma Piedras, is very Bukowski-like, as you will find out in the interview and when you read the book. I highly recommend that you read it. Ana Castillo has been, for me, a, a very important figure in literature, in literary history, and in my own development as a writer. When I first started writing, I didn't know I was going to be a writer. I thought I was going to be a lawyer, and I got my degree in political science. But about a a year or so before I graduated, I took a literature course and fell in love and decided, wow, I want to do that. And I started writing, and I started to hear about Chicano writers and Chicano writers, and that's when I was introduced to the Michuala Letters, which is her first book and arguably one of the most important books in, in Chicano literature. And uh, I remember when I first picked it up, how amazing it was, because it's basically it's, it's a novel told in letters between uh, two women uh, writing back and forth to each other. And in the introduction, Ana Castillo tells the reader that you could read this novel any way you want. You can go to one letter and then skip around to the next rather than reading it in a linear way. And she evoked Julio Cortázar, who I had yet heard of, and his uh, novel uh, Hopscotch, where he kind of tells the reader the same thing. You can read this novel any way you want. And it just kind of opened up a new approach to me. It opened up uh, a literature to me in a way that uh, yeah, that I never thought possible. Because for me, you know, literature was very linear. It was a plot. It was it goes from here and then from there. And then this causes that. And, and it culminates here. But Ana Castillo didn't follow the rules. And she's still not following the rules, especially with this novel. So I'm really excited to talk to her. This is really the first time I will uh, get a chance to talk to her at length, uh, other than saying hello when we run into each other at conferences and events. So I'm very excited, and I know you're going to love it. So stick around, and we will talk to Ana Castillo. Ana Castillo is one of the most powerful voices in contemporary Chicana literature. She is the author of So Far From God and Sapagonia, both New York Times notable books of the year, as well as The Guardian, Peel My Love Like an Onion, and many, many other books of fiction, poetry, and essays. She divides her time between Chicago and southern New Mexico. Let's talk about your new novel, Give It to Me. Let's just talk, start with the basics. How did this novel come about? 
Well, and uh, I guess it was late spring of 2012. I was reading the prose of uh, Charles Bukowski. I had read his poetry in the 80s when he was still alive, and I liked it. My son um, was uh, interested in Charles Bukowski, and so I ordered some books for us to kind of read together. Shows you that it's okay <laughs> to read the children when they're small because now he's very, very big and you know, he's an adult man and we still will read together. And this was long distance. So it's a kind of a bonding thing too, even if it's Charles Bukowski. <laughs> so, you know, reading Charles Bukowski's novels and, you know, thinking about his life and his work, I decided to do an exercise on, on fiction, uh, raunchy but fun. My own my own take on it. Wow. Um, and that was how Juan um, Piedras was born. You know, it makes sense now that uh, you mentioned it. In fact, I actually had a question about Bukowski because there is a point in the novel uh, where a couple of his books are mentioned, including Notes of a Dirty Old Man. And Palma Piedras, uh, who is described in one passage as the loneliest woman in the world, is really, yeah, a very Bukowski-like character. She's like what Bukowski's character would be like if uh, he were a bisexual Chicana intellectual. Well, now that you think about it, well, I did pay I did pay homage to several of the writers that influenced uh, this work. I learned to write from reading some of my favorite authors are early 20th century. Um, I did, do have a short passage also in the novel talking about um, a naive man mm-hmm. and the, you know the men that surrounded her in her life in the early 20th century. And so, as a little tip of the hat. Um, at some point, yeah, there's a couple of copies of Charles Bukowski by the nightstand of one of the characters. There's another character that I've been mentioning to people because, although I don't think I mentioned him in the novel, and I don't know if I was thinking about him even consciously, I think this is important for, you know, for um, aspiring writers and for writers who, you know, already have experience um, to kind of think about and how books really work themselves into our molecular uh, memories. And so there's a, a guy that I read uh, by the name of Georges Batille. I discovered him a few years ago. Uh, I read two or three of his uh, uh, works. One is called My Mother. It's very interesting. Mm. and an interesting guy. He was born in the late 19th century, so he lived into like mid-20th century. So I, if anyone is looking to see where um, where and how I got some of these ideas, although it wasn't conscious, I thought about it afterwards, and I think there was where I was um, influenced a li- perhaps a little bit. Mm. So good literature, good writers anywhere in the world at any time, you know, for, at least for me, have been my teachers. And so this is where I was sort of uh, paying homage to um, these um, very... Um, interesting and, you know, sophisticated minds. And the reason I say sophisticated minds is because they, they're they not uh, hindered by, you know, certain societal inhibitions, if you will. Right, right, just like Palma Piedras. I, I love this character. She's, uh, you know, what I really like about this novel is, you know, as you're reading it, it's not like the plot starts taking over. It's everything is just so absorbed in the moment. And a lot of things happen to her, a lot of, horrible things and some good things and uh but I don't feel like I'm being pulled along by you know something that 
the author has to say or that the story has to say, but just that I'm 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 following this character and, and so deeply absorbed in her. <laughs> She's fascinating. She's, uh, like I said, she was described as the loneliest woman in the world. She's, she's highly, you know, intellectual. She's a translator. But she really is kind of, I guess lonely is a good way of saying it. But she doesn't seem to be excited about anything except occasionally, the, you know, these sexual encounters she has, especially with Pepito. What's interesting is, for example, there's a lot of food in this, in this novel. There's a, a chef. There's a... Palma herself uh, uh, is a cook, and, and, and the food is described you know, in such a way that makes me hungry at times. There's a lot of food. She's surrounded by food, but she doesn't seem to have much of an appetite for it. Uh, someone else had point, pointed that out to me, and I'm not, I did not put that in um, or not put that in intentionally. I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she's very connected sensually, I think, to her surroundings, there's yeah. also music, and she and she has the same contempt for everything. You know, sort of like uh, equal opportunity contempt for <laughs> life. So maybe that's why she doesn't eat the food. She appreciates the food, and then she doesn't really want to eat it. Um, she dances a, a couple of times to boleros and appreciates very deeply the sentiment of a bolero, and then she has contempt for it. Um, she has contempt for the middle class, the mulch, and then admits that she was once part of the mulch herself. <laughs> and so I think this is um, this character has learned to thrive. I don't know. I don't even know if I want to use the word survive because she's beyond that. She's mm-hmm, a right. warrior type of person. You know, warriors they also they have a shield which is good that protects them, and the shield unfortunately protects her maybe from really, truly um, absorbing some of that sensuality. So everything becomes very raw for her. And she is a very raw character in the sense that the things that you mentioned that have been hard for her in life have left her raw. And the way to protect herself is to harden herself. And I think this is why we think that she's, um, you know, that she's jaded and that she's really not fully experiencing joy. But it's just a hardened shell. It's her way of trying to protect herself. Um, at the same time, I think there's this unconscious, haphazard spiritual search that brings her to a way and in, to, you know, being able to look into herself. How do you start a novel? I mean, is it an image? Is it an idea? And what is usually your writing process? Well, the very first novel I've I have published, um, I think six novels and. Uh, one collection of short stories as far as um, fiction goes. I've written much more than that just mm-hmm. so that people who feel so disappointed or <laughs> feel, those, feel the, you know, the chafing of a rejection letter. I have uh, full manuscripts that have not seen the light of day. Oh, my, but wow. The very first novel is usually the novel that you have to get out of your system. And I didn't, again, I didn't study writing. I don't come out of an MFA program or an English department or Spanish department. So I was very self-taught and just came to it through my love of reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was really, again, uh, there's another version of the Miskiwala letters that didn't get, didn't get published because no one ever saw it. I just wrote it, and then I didn't like it, and I uh-huh. wrote it differently. So there's me trying to find my bearings, but that very first, novel, what uh, was the impulse and the inspiration was 
uh, I was a young, you know, young woman in my early 20s, and I really felt that I had something to say uh, about my generation. And I think this is this is more common for young novelists. When they work, they work very well. Uh, my novel's been um, in print for over 25 years now. The Mr. Wallow Letters has had a lot of editions, and it's um, really it's very gratifying that it's still speaking to new generations of uh, very specifically Latino uh, young men and women, men now. And at that time, I thought that, you know, it was mostly speaking about um, about the women. And so that was how that went. But how I generally answer that question is there is a query, there is a question that we have when we go to our laptops, to our, you know, writing pads or, you know, our yellow pad and pen. We have a question about life at that moment. And in that effort to begin to answer it is how we begin, you know, our stories. Quite often in my case, So Far From God, Feel My Love Like an Onion, The Guardians, um, and Palma Piedras uh, all began with um, writing the first, let's say, chapter or 20 or 30 pages in one sitting, which is, I thought they might be like a short story. <laughs> you know, and right. then it turns out that I I want to know more about this character, and so then the real hard work begins, and that's trying to develop another two hundred pages of this character's life. Could you? What would it be fair to say that oftentimes you think you're writing something, but then the piece itself kind of grows in such a way that it teaches you what it wants to be? Um, I don't know if it's not teach. I wouldn't use the word teaching. I would say that. Um, it's like the the fish that you catch and you don't know how big it is until you start oh. to realize. So there I'm struggling, <laughs> trying to pull this in. I don't know what I have at the other end. Yeah. And as long as it's interesting and compelling to me and arouses my curiosity, I can keep writing. If I feel bored with it, it doesn't matter how much I tweak and rework, I just can't you know continue with it. Follow-up question on uh, these uh, works that you've written that haven't seen the light of day. Have have some of them not seen the light of day because you couldn't get them published? A couple, yes. And Wow, that uh, does probably make every writer in the world happy because <laughs> everyone still, you know, we think when it's somebody at your stature that, that you can write anything, just send it out and somebody will publish it. Yes. No, I think it's important that people should know I had a publisher that's actually says she absolutely hated everything. (laughs) (laughs) To my face, it wasn't even a polite letter. I said, is there anything there? She said, no, I hate it. That's wonderful. (laughs) I mean, wonderful, not wonderful. It's bad. It's horrible, but it's wonderful to know that. Absolutely. Well, I think it's important to say that and not to feel ashamed. Or You know, at that moment, I was uh, just beside myself, but here's another um, aspect to it, and it's something that I'm sure you've told students and uh, you know, writers that come to you for uh, such advice is that the editor sometimes acts as publisher in their company. They are the publisher right. or slash publisher. So you're talking about one and the same entity. And it's very, very important that you get the right editor. It's a really important relationship. That book is going to be as much that editor's book, perhaps, as it is your book. It's not a rivalry. It's really a, a kind of a marriage. When you get mm-hmm. the right editor, they're the closest people to your heart, uh, to your writer's heart. And what I learned with the one that said she hated everything about that manuscript, I gave it a few tries, and then I actually uh, proceeded and broke the contract 
because she was really the wrong editor for me. Yeah, and like like most marriages, it could end. <laughs> yes, it's not, it's not working, it's not working. And when it's not working, it's, there's no point in it. It's not about you anymore, it's about the combination of the two. Right, right. I'm talking to Anna Castillo, whose uh, latest novel, Give It to Me, just came out. It's a highly sexually charged novel. I mean, and it's also very detailed in, in how it portrays the, the sex scenes. Are you getting a lot of flack for that, or are people just kind of accepting it? You know, I'm, what I'm hearing is a really very gratifying. Uh, for example, speaking at, at the Wise Latinas um, event the other night in El Paso, uh, one of the members thanked me for it with regards to speaking about what Chicanas and Latinas are usually silenced about. Mm-hmm. I have been addressing um, Latina sexuality uh, since I was a poet in the 70s. Right. At that time, it was all about the Chicano movement and the UFW, and I did write those poems initially, but I also found that it was really uh, it was political and it was personal and all of that, as a brown woman to own my body and to own my sexuality. And I came upon this sort of on my own, in my own experiences and in my own politics that I was formulating. This was before we even had feminism, before we had Chicana feminism. You know, in my book, of the Dreamers, I actually had to come up with a term for it, which was Chicanisa. So I'm still doing it. This is not a new thing for me. But it's very gratifying to hear uh, someone address that it is important, and it has, it's been brought up several times in that context. Uh, the Lambda Literary Review, now that's the, you know, LGBTQ and T community, wrote a wonderful review about it. What was wonderful about it is she never mentioned all those variations of sexuality. What she called it was a, a book that was discussing the taboos of desire. It's not mm, the taboos of sex. Yeah with the tables of desire. And so that really just is very gratifying to me as a writer because that's who this character is. This character never defines her, so she also doesn't call herself Latina. You know, right. she she is, you know, Mexican. She is a Chicana, Mexican-American. She, When we talk about food, what is she making? She's making tortillas. She knows how to make all kinds of tortillas. <laughs> but she is who she is. She doesn't have to explain herself. So she's attracted to one person or another person, it's her desire that's going in that direction. Um, And I think that's still a very important discussion for us to have as a society. Um, Obviously, Latinos uh, tend to be, be, at least in terms of society, uh, more conservative. I don't think in practice we are. Uh, Catholicism has had a lot to do with that. Um, And uh, so we're still discussing these things. But that's what I love about her. You mentioned that she doesn't um, she doesn't discuss herself very much, and I've I've heard that and I've seen that. You see her doing things. You mm. don't see her reflecting on them or discussing them, much less worrying about them. That's that's really what I love about this novel and what I love about her character. It's gone beyond the issue of identity. It's not like am I a Chicana? Am I a lesbian? Am I this? Am I that? It is just her and her desire, and that what controls this fantastic book, Give It to Me by Ana Castillo. Ana, thank you so much for joining us on Words on a Wire. Thank you. Thanks so much. I enjoy your program.
This week's poem of the week is by Charles Bukowski in honor of Ana Castillo's main character, Palma Piedras, and it's called For the Foxes. Don't feel sorry for me. I am a competent, satisfied human being. Be sorry for the others who fidget, complain, who constantly rearrange their lives like furniture. Juggling mates and attitudes, their confusion is constant, and it will touch whoever they deal with. Beware of them. One of their key words is love. And beware those who only take instructions from their God, for they have failed completely to live their own lives. Don't feel sorry for me, because I am alone, for even at the most terrible moments, humor is my companion." I am a dog walking backwards. I am a broken banjo. I am a telephone wire strung up in Toledo, Ohio. I am a man eating a meal this night in the month of September. Put your sympathy aside. They say water held up Christ. To come through, you better be nearly as lucky. That was For the Foxes by Charles Bukowski. My name is Nancy Ayve Gonzalez. I am a Chicana poet, educator, and activist. I live in the San Joaquin Valley. I'm a member of Escritores del Nuevo Sol, a writing group in Sacramento. My piece, Needlework, was inspired by a memoir and spirituality workshop I took with Ana Castillo. I remember my abuela in her peach house dress watching a dramatic Spanish novella, the kind where people are crying, fighting, and passionately in love. She would work on creating dollies. She put them all over the house, in the living room, on the couches, on the dining room table, and even in the bathroom. My grandma Chulita crocheted a dress for me. According to my mom, it took a whole week to finish it. I have a photograph in the pink dress with satin ribbons on the sleeves. In the picture, I'm holding a Pooh Bear and smiling. Eventually, I grew out of the dress. One day, I started pulling on the threads and the dress began to unravel. My mom discovered that I had pulled half the dress apart. She began to cry and I cried as well. 30 years ago, a jogger found a man in the Arrowhead Mountains with several bullets in his stomach. The man had been a drug addict. The autopsy report indicated that it had taken several hours for the man to pass away. And the last thing he had eaten was a blood orange. The murderer was never found. The victim was my father. Knitting together memories of my father is difficult. Memories shift and change over time. My father was in and out of my life. One of my greatest fears as a child was that he would return home, strung out on drugs. He was volatile when he was high. He had hurt his back while working for the Santa Fe Railroad fixing railroad lines. He began by taking prescription drugs and then illegal drugs to numb the pain. When he returned home from his long absences, he would yell and hit my mother. He would leave her bruised and beaten. 
I would watch frozen in fear as the violence unfolded in the living room. When the arguing came to an end, my father would slam the thick wooden door, rev up his yellow Plymouth duster, and leave a trail of exhaust. Memory is our ability to encode, retain, and recall information from the past. It is delicate and interconnected to neurons that were involved in the original experience. I think of the white exterior of the house my familia lived in on F Street in San Bernardino. I can feel the bumps on the red porch where I sat combing my Barbie's hair. I recall the sparse kitchen my mom cooked in, the smell of arroz y frijoles simmering on the stove lasting through the casa. I peer into the two mostly empty rooms with beds and dressers. My mother didn't have much money for food, let alone for decorating. There were a few family photographs of my father, mother, brother, and I on the walls. I look into the house and I see myself watching my mother and father kissing. I hear my father playing Three Dog Night on the record player on a summer evening. I envision my brother crawling on the green shag carpet. I can see my family leaving and arriving home from the store, the welfare office, school, and church. The walls of the house containing the tears and laughter. I can see the long grass I ran barefoot through in the backyard, pretending I was a butterfly. The fig tree that grew by the chain link fence. The sticky fruit that produced. I find myself on that street in my memory, trying to reconstruct experience. Many times when I have driven by San Bernardino to visit a relative, I stop by the street we lived on. There is a vacant space where the house once stood, weeds grow there, and white bags of trash spill into the land. No one lives there but grasshoppers and spiders. The weeds are dry and sway in the wind. The ghosts of the past whisper. I can see my dad smoking on the porch in the darkness, the red light of the joint softening his features, his brown eyes glistening, his deep voice asking me to sing the itsy bitsy spider and twinkle twinkle little star, his laughter filling the night when I sing to him the thick air of our love surrounding us. I haven't forgotten how it felt to be a child frightened by the world. I don't hear the dull thud of my father's fist or the shouting. I don't see the blood on my mother's face or the indigo bruises. I hear the quiet breathing of my mother as she holds me in her arms. I feel my father's large, rough hand holding mine as I glide down the street on my roller skates for the first time. I see the dollies my grandmother crocheted on the living room table and the pink dress that became undone. I'm not the five-year-old child anymore, but a woman in her 30s that knows things become unraveled and that life is a delicate work of art. I appreciate that our lives 
are knitted together by intricate designs of ugliness and beauty. Her words on a wire, Nancy Ayve Gonzalez. I'd like to thank Ana Castillo for joining us on Words on a Wire. Make sure you check out her new novel called Give It to Me. It just came out, and it's a fantastic book. I'd also like to thank Nancy Ede Gonzalez for her reflections and her inspiration. I'm Daniel Chacon. Join me next week for another edition of Words on a Wire. And don't forget, the next book you read may save your life. I'm up on a tight wire. Sides, ice, and one is